Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Tom, how are you doing today? John, it's always a privilege to work with the titans of banking. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, the check's in the mail, as they say. You, you are kind <laughs> enough uh, last year to sit down with me when uh, we talked about your book, 200 Years of American Financial Panics, Crashes, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. And so I really appreciated uh, both the, what you covered there, because it's always interesting to look back at uh, you know some of those major both economic and policy points in the in our history, but I also was taken by what you've done not since but something that I've seen that you and uh, your colleague Bob have been working on, and that's the creation of this financial technology and cybersecurity center. So I have a bunch of questions for you, but first maybe you can just give us a sense of with all you've done, with all the work you've done, the agencies you work for all of the institutions and firms that you've represented have been part of what made you, what made you do this other than it's clear cybersecurity is super important, but what made you put this center together and what, what are their main goals? Yeah, John. So let, let me try to synthesize it down because it's, it, it's basically the culmination of 45 years of experience that I've had in my career. And interestingly enough, the two things that I've worked on the most in my career of among several things is financial crises and technology. When I started the, two of the first things I worked on was the failure of Franklin National Bank, which was the largest failure in the country at that time in the 1970s. And then I worked on the controller's approval of national banks issuing and establishing ATMs, which at that point, you know, we thought was the height of, technological development, right, right. an ATM, right? Yeah. So we've come a long way. And my career sort of kept me in those two fields uh, throughout the period. I think I represented a majority of the failed, largest failed companies in this country over these years. And I've been involved in some of the technological developments. And I, I realized when I was working on the Mondex experiment, for example, right. in the 1990s and uh, creating websites for banks and doing joint venture uh, with them and investigating uh, breaches of their websites, even back in the early 2000s, it was terrifically exciting. And I think I realized years later, and particularly now that I, after I retired from the practice of law, that I had been captured by and mesmerized by technology, just like everybody else. And you tended to focus on the competitive and innovative upside and not so much on the security aspects. Right. And as I've gotten further and further away from those experiences and become more and more adept at understanding technology. And when I say understanding technology, I decided long ago in my career that if I was going to advise companies on technology, I had to understand the underlying science. So I had people teach me digital signatures and hashing and cryptography. 
uh, and how computers work and how the engineering works and how coding works and how it's tacked. Because I, I didn't think I could represent people without knowing the scientific side of it. Um, much like when I was doing merger litigation, I tried to understand the economics right. uh, of what was going on. And what I've come to realize is that we have made a huge mistake. And that is we have maximized innovation to the detriment of security. And so if you take that and you apply it to a critical infrastructure uh, in this country and say, what are the ramifications? I think you immediately come to the conclusion that we are doing billions and trillions of dollars of transactions now on networks and using coding that is highly insecure. And we know it's insecure. And, and in fact, the experts will tell you we're creating vulnerabilities twice as fast as we're creating the solution. And why is that? Because the market rewards innovation and it's not punishing insecurity. So I stepped back and I said, wait a minute, something has to happen here. We have to have an objective voice looking at these issues, not a voice that's, that's trying to make money off cybersecurity, not a, not a voice that's trying to, has an ax to grind, but an independent voice that says, wait a minute, is this the right thing to do? And should we say, be saying, stop, let's reconfigure what we're doing to make it more secure. Let me let me let me ask you a couple of things though about that. One is in the AML space, which I'm much more familiar with, and the broader space that you that you work in. Uh, the last uh, the anti money laundering law that was that was signed last year that has poten potential to be the most dramatic change we've seen since the Patriot Act. So there's all sorts mm -hmm. of studies and strategies, whatever. But one of the sections in, or maybe several sections in that law, talks about innovation and. From from a high level, the way I understand it, in AML I'm talking only, is that, um, you know, institutions have been saying for quite a long period of time, hey, you know, we can be more efficient at surveillance, monitoring, you know, trying to determine whether uh, illicit funds are in our system. But you, the agencies, have to give us give us some wiggle room. You got you to give us a lane or, or two. And so again, high level policymakers, both sides, it seemed to be bipartisan, said, all right, let's let's stress innovation. Now, I, I would not argue, but I would, I would say that based on that, it seems to me, and it sounds like you would tell me something different, that the agencies, while they endorse that concept, maybe are not paying as much attention as you would like them to do, or maybe that they shouldn't be doing, regarding the security of the innovation. Is that is that is that a fair statement of, of in the AML space where, where you think we are? I think that's a fair statement in the AML space, and I think it's a fair statement of in the financial services space generally with respect okay. to technology. So, what what I did, and, and this will all be laid out in my new book, which is called "The Unhackable Internet: How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial Collapse." What I did for that book is I took a select group of about 90 government and not NGO uh, reports on cybersecurity and financial services, just cybersecurity and financial services, not cybersecurity generally. And I, I read each of those reports 
and I tried to synthesize them down to their ultimate bottom lines. And what I found, John, was, and just by searching, I searched for the words innovation and I searched for the words security. Mm -hmm. And you won't be surprised if in those reports, the word innovation shows up about 20 times as often as the word security. Because from a political point of view, what is it about technology that's mesmerizing? Right. It's, it's the newness. It's the, the ability to create jobs, as all of these reports say. And there has been sort of this tacit reliance on the technology business and the cybersecurity experts to keep us safe. Right. Every financial institution I ever represented was relying on. And, and you'll know this, too outside service providers, right? To keep right. the systems safe. And the problem is, is that we're dealing with inferior networks, we're dealing with inferior code, and we're dealing with systems that aren't fundamentally safe. And, and so you're exactly right. We have gotten lost, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have gotten lost along the way because we have been mesmerized by the innovation, the efficiencies, and the profits that technology can create, but have forgotten that they also create enormous vulnerabilities. And I think Congress has been mesmerized. I think the regulators up to a certain point were mesmerized. I know my clients were mesmerized because it was all about competing in the space rather than competing securely in the space. And so we get to a point now where I think in 2022, people are waking up. I think the regulators have figured this out. And I think they're saying to themselves, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been captivated by, by technology, but there are certainly systemic stability issues that arise, national security issues that arise from, from exposing the financial infrastructure of financial services to these kinds of risks. And so I think we're at, a, we're at a, a turning point here in terms of how we look at and treat technology to the extent that it impacts a critical infrastructure. And that's what my book talks about. It basically concludes that we have a very severe problem, but there are solutions if we opt to choose them. But, but going, going back to the mission of the center, one of the things that it seems that you are uh, trying to accomplish is getting really smart people together uh, to have not just conversations, but to have policy debates and papers. And so is that what you're focused on? Besides other things, we'll come back to crypto in a little bit. But I do want yeah. to ask you about that. But is that what you're hoping, besides what you're writing in your book, getting, again, my words, really smart people together and coming up with some practical ways of improving infrastructure, which is, we both know, is a combination of technology, but also legal issues, uh, you know, um, it, it, po policy issues or regulatory issues. So when you want to fix an infrastructure, it's, it's not, you know, a, pressing a button. It's trying to figure out what's the tech response, but also what's the legal, what are the privacy issues, all that's all of those things that I, I'm sure must complicate decisioning. But is that what another part of what the center's focused on is trying to come up with a series of solid, specific, practical recommendations? Yeah, so that, that's precise, John. When, when Bob Letting and I left Scalia Law School at George Mason University, 
uh, and, and had really planted the seeds of this center there in terms of what we were doing, uh, we looked at each other and we said, you know, I don't think the technology business needs another advocate or another trade association, right. you know, cheerleading for it. It's got enough of that out there. I think what we need is somebody saying, and some organization that can bring together the smartest minds in financial services and say, wait a minute, what are the protections we need in the financial infrastructure to protect it and national security? That's basically the fundamental core. And we, we started with four principles, John. The first is that the financial infrastructure is one of the prime two targets of hackers in this world today. Right. Uh, the, the, the numbers of hacks, the numbers of phishing attempts, the number of bogus sites, clearly far and away, uh, financial infrastructure is a unique and high profile target. Number two, we concluded that it is not secure enough to do financial transactions on it. If it ever was, it certainly isn't now. Number three, it needs to be secured before there's a financial Armageddon. And it'd be really negligent and imprudent of us on, uh, to wait for that financial Armageddon to wake up and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be doing this business on open internet architecture. And number four, and this is the hard part, uh, the solutions are going to take a unique private-public coalition, the likes of which we've never seen before, because left to its own devices, the government is not going to fix this problem. And therefore, it's got to bubble up from the private sector and from companies that have concluded that they are in a world of high insecurity and that there are alternatives uh, to solve that problem. And, and that's what we're trying to do, to bridge that gap, to bring people together, to create a policy awareness and create positions that people say, wait a minute, let's objectively look at this stuff and say to ask ourselves the question, is this infrastructure secure enough to handle the business we're doing on it? So um, two, two things come to mind. One is what do you think that investment's going to be? And I, I, I realize we don't know the answer to that, but I'm curious the economics. And the second is, I think we talked about this the last time we did an interview, and that's the only thing that I'm aware of that's sort of private, public, tangential to this space, because I interviewed somebody for a podcast a couple of years ago, was the FSISAC, you know, was the group right, of institutions right. that, that right. Uh, on their own created a way to respond to the various cyber attacks it sounds like you need and i don't want to be facetious it sounds like you need that on steroids to deal with all the things that you and bob and others think are are gaps in in protection yeah well you've hit them you've hit the nail right on the head and here's the problem with the public private coalition to solve problems it, it, it usually doesn't work and why doesn't it work in the financial services business well it doesn't work in the financial services business because in your and my lifetime in financial services it has gone from a collegial relationship to an adversarial right. relationship, right? Yep. So mm -hmm. nobody's out there trying to voluntarily give money to the to the bank regulators. Give, I mean, give give data to the bank regulators. Why? They think it's going to be used against them, right? So here's the problem with the public private coalition in in the financial services business. You're either sharing information with your competitors, and we all well know that. 
security is going to be another means by which people compete with each other. Right. Right. Number right. two, if you're giving that information to the government, well, does anybody trust Congress or the regulators not to use that information against them to bring an enforcement action? I don't think so. Right. So you've got all of these problems in terms of creating this public private coalition that can solve some of the problems. And so what we're going to need is we're going to need a set of laws that basically protect people who put themselves into these positions and say, look, if the information gets shared, it can't be used. And if it does get used, this happens or that happens. But there's a whole system of things that have to happen. And, and I lay some of this out in my new book to, to basically create the environment where a public-private coalition can work effectively. Because today, it's just not going to be effective. Because I know when I was rep representing financial institutions, they were hesitant to give information to their competitors. And they sure as hell were, uh, were hesitant to give information to their regulators. You know, that, that's um, it just reminds me of something that I was uh, pleased to have worked on decades ago. And that's when the money laundering laws were first crafted. And there was the concept of what's now a suspicious activity report. We pushed hard in the early 90s to get in legislation what we call the civil safe harbor. So basically it was, you can file a SAR, there's no liability for filing that SAR. And there was an attempt by policymakers to put a good faith exception or good faith uh, restriction around it. We said, no chance, you do that, then banks are not gonna feel free to file these reports and you don't want that. Now it's been challenged a bunch of times, but rarely has it been successful because as long as the institution had a process. So it sounds to me, it's not the same. It's not analogous uh, uh, accurately, but it's close where you have to have laws that do encourage the sharing of information, that in this case, the sending of suspicious reporting information. Uh, and anytime you put any guardrails around it or any parameters around it, you're just not going to get the same sort of data. So I think that's uh, uh, that sounds like a similar a similar goal, which I certainly agree with you that that yeah, has to yeah. happen for this to work. You know, precisely. Yeah, let's um, let's go back. I want to make sure we cover cryptocurrency on a couple of different levels. You know, obviously, uh, when we're recording this, uh, the market is uh, in bear territory. Everybody's, uh, you know, I don't say they're panicked yet, but certainly the the storylines aren't great. But in the crypto space. Specifically, there's been obviously a, a, a great dramatic lessening of the value proposition. So in the AML world, whenever we have a conference or a, a, you know, panel discussions and crypto comes up, law enforcement says, hey, we're concerned. Uh, some people in the crypto space say, hey, you know, we, we sort of know what we're doing. Uh, both sides are probably uh, wrong on both counts. There's a little bit of what, whatever there, but I'm concerned. Two, two things I want to ask you. One is, I know some of my colleagues in AML have gone from traditional banks to crypto companies because they have the background. So that's starting to happen, but it's not necessarily throughout senior leadership of these entities. So I think there's probably some concerns about that. But given that, the people are just starting to migrate over into the crypto world and the lack of consistent regulation, I think is a fair generalization, a fair statement. What's your take on regulation, supervision, 
and sort of the quality of compliance in that space and how important is that from from your from your perspective yeah that's a great question john so and i wrote a lot about this subject in 200 years uh, in the in the first book because i i have long since reached the conclusion uh and i said this to people in the last few presidential administrations and trying to get some traction I've long since reached the conclusion that our regulatory system is misfocused. I mean, the people are great. Um, everybody's trying to do as, as much as they can, but it's misfocused, misdirected, and sort of running in the wrong direction. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that technology has changed the world so dramatically that it no longer looks like the 1930s, when all of the laws that we're now functioning under were passed, right. right? Every single one, 32, the Federal Home Loan Bank Act, 33, the Securities Act of 1933, the, uh, the National Housing Act, the FDIC Act, one after another, all the way up to the Investment Company Act in 1940. Well, the, the, the financial environment looks nothing like it did in that, in that world. But we're dealing with statutes that were written from the perspective of that world and all of the characteristics of it. And so here we are, technology has changed the world dramatically. And we're still regulating banks, prudentially. But anybody else can mimic what a bank is doing and not be regulated because it's not a bank. Right. Well, how does anybody believe that that makes sense in this environment? How is it that that Meta, formerly Facebook, can issue a digital coin uh, and basically just have to file some money transmitter and AML filings, but that if a major bank wants to do it, they got to negotiate with their regulators for months, if not years, right? right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a nonsensical system. And, and as I say, it's, it's not the regulator's fault. It's that the world is passed particularly Congress by, and I don't know how much of this Congress even understands, right. but we should be regulating activities and, and not necessarily companies, right? Because you take two companies side by side, if they're doing the financial services business, only the bank gets prudentially regulated. And what does that do? Well, it does exactly what's happening now. It means that AML is closely regulated in financial institutions and loosely regulated in crypto companies. Right. It means that risk is monitored and, and controlled in financial institutions, but it means that the higher risk is being forced into non-regulated sectors of the economy. And we saw that in 2008, when all the subprime mortgages moved to subprime lenders that weren't regulated entities or at least weren't federally regulated entities, and they blew up. Right. And so, you know, risk is there, and you can make two choices. You can say we want to regulate the risk, or we're going to force it into places that aren't regulated. But forcing it into areas of the economy that aren't regulated makes no sense. And that's what we're doing again. We've done it over and over again. And unless we go back and fix the system and restructure it and refocus on what we're doing, you know, uh, when I was a general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, I sat on the vice president's task force, which was uh, George uh, H. Bush right. at that point, on, um, 
regulation of financial institutions. And in 1984, it came up with a seminal report saying that, that financial activities in the country should be functionally regulated. That was 1984. <laughs> Here we are several years later. We haven't made one step of progress in that direction. And technology is now going to punish, it, punish us for not doing that. And so, yes, we're going to end up with a lot of risk created uh, by companies any concern over AML or money laundering. We're going to be burnt by the fact that risk is being pushed into non-regulated areas of the, uh, of the financial sector until we figure out how to recalibrate regulation in a highly technological environment. The, uh, I, I definitely want to come back and talk to you when your book is out, but I, I do want to talk about two more, get your take on two more things. One is you, uh, you had some comments when the Biden administration issued their executive order on crypto back in March. Tell us a little bit about that. And then I do want to get one, one more theme. I do want to get you to reference one of the big cybersecurity problems, and that's ransomware that I know mm-hmm. The yep. AML world is paying more attention to banks have been paying attention, to, but but the AML world it's sort of part of their world now than it used to be. So so the first question is uh, on the White House executive order. I know you you didn't believe it went far enough, so I know you could talk for a bit on that. But just give us your high level view of that, and then your your take on what we can do to deal with ransomware besides what we're trying to do today. Yeah. So first on the executive order, I'll tell you, um, I had I put out an op ed and I had three specific criticisms of it. One, I said it did not focus on security enough. Uh, it, it did not focus on the need for crypto and uh, CBDC. And it certainly did not touch on the issue of dual regulation of fintech and financial services. I mean, we're, we're dealing in a world here where we have so many regulators, they bump into each other trying to right. fight for press releases and jurisdictional priority. Yep. I mean, it's crazy. What kind of a world makes sense when the when the state regulators are suing the controllers of the currency over jurisdiction. Does that make sense to the taxpayers as a matter of public policy? I mean, why do the taxpayers care, really? But so, you know, I, I, I thought what it was was a little more of the same. And, and what really frustrated me was that having read those 90 papers going back to President Clinton's administration in 1994, Clinton got it all. The Clinton administration nailed every issue that we had to deal with in cyberspace. They understood it. They nailed the issues. They put out two executive orders that were right on point. And you know what? And this was the most frustrating thing to me in reading the the, the Biden executive order on May 12th of, of, uh, of this year. And that is that it looked like every other executive order since 1994. And that's when, when you've started to delve into the history and see where we are and see the time that we've wasted right. and the bureaucratic you know, processes that have occurred with no act, you say to yourself, this will never change. And so I saw the executive order as just another piece in that continuing puzzle when, when I thought there was a huge opportunity to basically say, look, let's stop the presses here and let's take a fresh look at what's really going on with crypto and cyberspace and CBDC. And, and, and it just, unfortunately, I think, I think some of the president's people really understand this stuff. I think Chris Inglis 
understands this stuff. And I, I just think that uh, we missed an opportunity there to really dig in on, on the security side and just not make a political statement. So that's, that's on the president's executive order on ransomware. So ransomware is, is sort of the, the poster child for, for the problems we've got today, right? Right, right. Um, you know, it, it is relentless. But I think we are dealing with that all wrong also because we're looking at it as if it's, it's a bunch of bubbling computer hackers in a basement or some, some people in a hostile country attacking us. And you know what? I, I think we're not going to solve our problems thinking about it that way. Number one, people who are in the ransomware business are running a business. We should be thinking about them as people that have income statements, right? The only way the, the ransomware business keeps going is if they get the ransom. <laughs> if they never get the ransom, there's no business. Right. So, so let me give you an example of, 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 of that kind of mindset. In 1960s, and I remember this a little bit, Italy was the number one executive kidnap capital of the world. Executives from every company, some of the major car companies that were there, were being kidnapped and ransomed back for huge amounts of money. Now that went on for 20 years. And in 1991, Italy passed a law. And the law said that once somebody is kidnapped, the assets of their family are frozen by the state. Why? Interesting. It prevents them from paying the ransom. Mm -hmm. Now, you might say that that was a pretty harsh and, and uncompassionate law, but it dropped executive uh, kidnappings from on an average of 30 or 29 a year to five a year. And that's because the business couldn't function because there was no income. Right. So what Italy did is it went after the income statement of the ransomware business. And it said, we're going to put you out of business. And it did. Now, what does that mean in terms of what we're doing today? Well, the, the, the critical problem is, is that we have insecure networks and insecure coding. So you have to assume that if somebody wants to break into the system and bring it down, they can. Right? I think everybody, every expert in the cybersecurity business will tell you that you have to work under that assumption. You have to assume that if, if a hostile country wanted to bring down the power grid in this country, they could. Now, they don't. Why? Because we'll bring down their power grid, right? So right. You, there's a little bit of mutually assured destruction. On the other hand, what some people are talking about now is mutually unassured, uh, unassured destruction. And that is nobody quite knows what happens if you start launching these missiles, these cyber missiles back and forth. But... There's, so there's been a proposal. Let me take one proposal. There's been a proposal to have ransomware insurance to protect companies. On the one hand, there's some positive aspects to that. Number one, you get an insurance underwriter involved, and the insurance underwriter will underwrite the hell out of the company to make sure their security methodologies are as strong as possible. Sure. And they can be as responsive and preventative with respect to ransomware as they possibly can. And so that gives you a second set of eyes. Besides the government, it gives you the private sector underwriting businesses trying to make sure they have adequate security. But on the negative side of insurance, what does that do? 
It is the engine that fuels the income side of the income statement for ransomware. It's telling people involved in the ransomware business, now you know there's a pot of gold to get, right? So there's actually, it's actually building an incentive to create more ransomware. So again, this is a, an extraordinarily complicated problem, and I don't think it gets solved until we get to the root cause of all of it. And the root cause, I think, is the original sin of poor coding. Poor coding, and interesting. Yeah. And the original sin of poor, poor coding is brought about because if you're running a software company, there is no incentive for you to hold up that product for six months to test it, as opposed to getting into the market and patching it later. Why? The market, re the market rewards innovation and it doesn't punish security, insecurity. Well, Tom, you've given us a lot to chew on here. Um, Tom Bartanian, Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center. If you go on the website there, you can sign up for information to stay informed on the, the roundtables, the articles and op-ed pieces that uh, Tom and, and his uh, uh, Bob Ledig, uh, his co-partner, uh, have done. And obviously, Tom, we'll come back to you when your book is out there. But I think you've given us, again, a lot. Uh, not just to think about, but obviously trying to connect the dots in the AML world. You know, you and I probably aren't having this interview five, 10 years ago, because even though security was important in the cyber sense, the AML people, not that they didn't care, but it wasn't really part of their portfolio. It clearly is now right. with, with the, you know, information security folks within institutions. They're definitely more connected than they used to be. And I guess the goal is, is connect those same people with the public sector so that jointly we can figure things out. But um, I'm really looking forward to the book and some of your recommendations. Um, you know, I think uh, a strategy going forward makes sense. And it's, it's pretty clear after all these years of working in this space, you still have the passion and energy to keep moving. So that's, that's great. And we do appreciate you sharing some of that with us today. Thanks very much, John. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to end with one thought. I think all of this, all of this sort of ends at one terminal point, and that is none of this gets improved, nothing gets changed unless we have strong leaders. And that's, right. I, I think that's the number one thing that we need now. That makes sense. Tom Bartanian, thank you so much. Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.